Hello and welcome to the Times Business Podcast. I'm Callum Jones. Britain's largest technology company is set to be sold for £24 billion. What does it mean for the future of the country's other corporate crown jewels? And what can we expect from BP and Shell as they prepare to report their second quarter results? Joining us in the studio this week is The Times business editor Richard Fletcher, Robin Pagnamenta, our energy editor, and our technology and communications editor Nick Files. Arm Holdings, the Cambridge-based chip designer, is expected to recommend that shareholders accept a £24 billion takeover offer from SoftBank, the Japanese technology giant. Some have welcomed such a huge investment just weeks after Brexit, but its founder, Herman Hauser, said it was a very sad day for technology in Britain. Nick, let's start with you. I think it took people by surprise because of the identity of the buyer. I mean, aren't there's been there was arms always been considered in play partly because it's the only sizable company doing what it does in Britain and the value of the business because it's listed here rather than on Nasdaq uh, has always been a bit below probably where it should be uh, very volatile share price uh, we've had usually Apple Intel and some of the big makers have always been linked with a bid and I mean there have been various different responses to this takeover first you have the likes of, of Theresa May heralding it as a vote of confidence in Britain after it voted to leave the EU, but then you've got others arguing that the weak pound is just being exploited by overseas bargain hunters right now. Um, Which of these arguments do you find most convincing? Well, SoftBank was certainly at pains to say this wasn't a Brexit deal. Uh, That was arguing that uh, it was actually more... It would have been cheaper to do it before uh, before the vote, because arms share price up at 15%. Mm. And they'd report in dollars. I think we have an objector here on. on no, on no, no objector. But uh, no, my point is, that it wasn't a Brexit deal. But if you look at the yen against the, you know, it's it's, a, it's definitely driven by currencies. This deal because over the last year we've seen the yen obviously uh, strengthen massively, and then Brexit gave it another boost, if you like. So it mm. was probably, a, a, by, I think I worked it out on the day, it was sort of about thirty percent cheaper than it would have been a year earlier. Isn't that right? Yeah, if you're paying in yen, but they're selling assets in China. In selling Supercell in Finland, you know, it is a more complex picture than just the yen. Sterling. I thought they were borrowing to finance this deal. Rather um, than most of it's cash in hand, would you okay. believe? And SoftBank is an enormous company, and they generate a lot of cash from from their operating assets. It, is I Herman... think more of a concern, actually, on this one is something that Herman Hauser was bringing up, which is that Arm basically becomes the cash machine for SoftBank. SoftBank has got a great reputation, especially Masayoshi's son, for for being very visionary, doing these deals, sort of exactly the right time but the only deal equivalent to this is Sprint really in terms of going into a big market they're not in and that hasn't worked out very well uh, and they do need a lot of cash and Arm generates a lot of cash and that was Herman's point he was saying you know why does Arm need to do this they're, they're a listed company they're generating a lot of money if they want to hire a thousand high-tech engineers they can do that they've got the resources to do that why do we need SoftBank to come in and pay for it and Arm actually has a, a, a huge amount of cash as well doesn't it isn't yeah, it, it sitting does. on almost a billion dollars that's memory? absolutely right and that that free cash flow is rising pretty much every quarter as well which is which I think is a much stronger argument about why are we doing this why can't Arm survive without a giant foreign owner. Richard? And, and, the, and the SoftBank shareholders were upset about this deal because, you're right, he had made these disposals, hadn't he? But what mm. they wanted was for him to reduce some of the leverage in the company and also, hopefully, give them some of that money back. That, that's why we saw the day after uh, the deal was announced here in London, the first chance they got to, to deliver their verdict, the shares full 10%. Is that, that right? That is right. They did come back a bit. Uh, there was worries about their credit raising. Moody's put that to bed, so they've come back a little bit. But... Uh, 
that's absolutely true. SoftBank is one of these companies that's sort of spending like it's going out of fashion, especially when Nikesh Sharora, he's just left the building, but he, he, he spent billions on lots of Indian startups, huge valuations. We're, never, we're not going to see a payback on them for a long time. So that's, I think, why they're concerned, why people are concerned about whether I'm basically going to be milked so they can generate more deals. Richard? And, and do you think, I mean, obviously, uh, we, we should inform you to say that sadly you are off to work for a Japanese-owned <laughs> trade paper, uh, but, but do you think Arm will be happy to be, uh, to be working for, uh, for, you know, do you think they'll lose some of their engineers? I mean, obviously, they have lots of engineers in Cambridge. They've got lots on the West Coast, haven't they, in America. That's right. Are they going to want to work for a Japanese company? I think uh, if SoftBank is good to its word, I mean, they, they, Masayoshi Son talked about giving it autonomy, which is a pretty awful used word to use in the UK tech, as Mr. Fletcher will tell you. But if they're good to that word, and Simon Seegers, who goes way back to actually almost the foundation of ARF, if he's still running it in five years, I think everybody would be relatively happy. If, as is the case in Sprint, things go a little sour and people starting being replaced and what Herman Hauser called a little bit of Japanese infiltration starts happening that might not be the case. But I guess the counter-argument would be that, as we wrote the other day, uh, a lot of these armed engineers are going to get huge payouts. Um, they've all got stock. If these guys aren't happy and they go and set up a new mini-arm here, a mini-arm there, and uh, that, that could actually be quite good for the UK tech industry in the long term. Robin? You, you hear a lot of talk about you know the Cambridge uh, technology industry, but I just wonder whether, you know, does, does the UK just have a, a kind of... It seems that both in technology and also biotech and, and the pharmaceutical industry, th- th- there does seem to be a tendency that when companies get to a certain size, you know, in- innovative uh, young UK um, companies just do seem to get bought up like this. Is there a problem there? Is there some reason why we don't seem to be able to take them to the next level, as in Silicon Valley? There is absolutely a problem there. And uh, it's, it's Michael Lynch was talking about this the other day. It's not so much getting that t- FTSE 250 level it's when you get to that 100 million pound level and you need to to go maybe take it off aim go into the main market and there's a real struggle finding the investors that will back the company I and mean, arms a great example if you look at the share price compared to the performance of the company it's been very very reliable very cash generative everything you'd want double digit growth every quarter pretty much but the share price is a zigzag because people look at apple and they think oh and that's because there's a lack of support knowledge I think it's not necessarily the problem investors it's just we don't have a lot of these type of companies so if you're a FTSE 100 fund manager and you're thinking okay great I can I've got a Tesco I know Sainsbury's I know all these guys and all the banks and I've got this funny little thing called arm I don't really understand that that's an issue and we used to see that didn't we with autonomy in that autonomy would announce their results like all companies in London at 7 a.m. and the share price would do one thing and then the US would wake up where you had a lot of uh, autonomy investors and they had their understanding of the company was so much better than uh, UK investors and you'd see the share price doing exactly the opposite didn't you I remember those days I always used to think if I wasn't a business editor I would have traded by you know buying in the morning and selling in the afternoon obviously corporate governance you're not supposed to do that sort of thing and, and obviously I didn't <laughs> no you're absolutely right that there, there, there is just a, a lack of the same sort of peer group I guess is what you would call it I mean Arm has got you know, imagination, CSR has been sold now, but there was a small group of companies you could maybe compare its performance to. But as I said, if you're a fund manager and you've got 100 companies that you're going to invest in, it's sometimes difficult to get your head around the prospects of someone doing something like an arm does compared to more steady British business. Soft, uh, SoftBank has pledged to keep its headquarters in, in Silicon Fen. Do you, is it pretty much business as usual in that respect? 
Well, apart from the quarterly reporting, yes. But as I said before, it's 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 as we found with autonomy. It was a brilliant example because HP made exactly the same noises, told Vince Cable they were going to invest and grow, and, and or autonomy was another ca- Cambridge company, and obviously things soured quite a lot after that. But that that didn't happen. So time will tell, really. Uh, and Arm has a proper business, <laughs> which some would argue. Some I say would argue autonomy didn't. Well, autonomy's up for sale again, Richard. Maybe you could buy it and uh, run it run it how you see fit. Richard, this um this obviously dropped days into Theresa May's premiership. Is the new government right to be so supportive of deals like this? Well, it was quite interesting because uh, she'd obviously just hours before uh, she was sort of uh, anointed prime minister, she'd made this speech where she was sort of selling a lot tougher on capitalism and the city, and she talked about sort of predatory takeovers. And obviously, when she made that speech, she expected to make a lot of speeches over the coming weeks, and maybe uh, that one would have been forgotten. So the, the noises had been... There was a sort of change in tone. And then Hammond came out very quickly uh, supporting the deal and, and declaring it a sort of vote of confidence in the UK economy and the fact our doors were still open, uh, which reminded me a little bit of when George Osborne came out and uh, welcomed the Pfizer deal only a few hours later to realise that perhaps this wasn't the best idea. I'm not sure it does uh, represent a sort of change in tone. I mean, you know, those sort of financial PR firms are very good at getting chances to come out and back these deals. Personally, if I was the Chancellor, I'd wait a little while, a little bit like we used to sort of recommend shareholders at Investors Chronicle should await developments. I think sometimes uh, Chancellors should await developments uh, before backing x deal for y deal i mean we have obviously seen as you would expect the daily mail come out and campaign to keep arm british that's arm company owned largely by u.s institutions uh, but you know we expected that i don't think there's going to be a political row about this deal and you know i suspect you know given that the pound has devalued we're probably going to see you know a few more of these sort of overseas bids uh, the, the, the Theresa has since made clear to well, Theresa may have since made clear let's be more um, proper about these things that you know they will there is some sort of public interest test i'm not sure how you do a public interest test because we are still subject to european competition law which doesn't allow you to do those sorts of things yeah i think that I think blocking it would also send out a pretty bad signal to every smaller tech company and every investor in those companies because there's always a take because of the size of the British tech industry and the history of it being, you know, pretty happy hunting ground for foreign companies. You'd pretty much wipe out a lot of value if you block this deal across the board. Okay, thanks very much. After the break, we'll be looking ahead to next week's results from BP and Shell. The Times Business Podcast is sponsored by Vodafone's Ready Business Britain. 2016 has been branded the year of the SME. This is your year. Time for your business to stand out. Are you ready? Vodafone's Ready Business Britain, in association with The Times and Sunday Times, has all the advice, insight and analysis your business needs to make this your year. Get ready. Visit readybusinessbritain.co.uk. Welcome back. Next week, we'll learn how the oil giants have been getting on this year. We'll get second quarter results from BP on Tuesday and the same from Shell on Thursday. Robin, what should we be looking out for? Well, to put it simply, uh, these numbers are going to be better than in the first quarter. During the the first three months of this year, we saw oil dip to $27, its lowest level since 2003. And I think the average during the second quarter was $43, $44. So there will be an improvement in earnings on a quarter by quarter basis. Year on year, I think they're still going to be down. 
what we're also going to see is uh, weaker refining margins. Um, this has been one area where the big oil companies have sort of uh, been managing to, uh, to to continue to make money during this this huge downturn that we've seen over the past two years. Uh, their downstream businesses or their refining and marketing businesses have held up reasonably well, while their oil production businesses, their upstream arms, have been uh, have been losing a lot of money. In the second quarter, we actually saw uh, refining margins come under quite a lot of pressure, so that there will be more difficulty there. But I think generally that, that these numbers are going to be weak, but a little better than at the very start of the year. So considering the downturn, I think the price of Brent crude is still about half of what it was in 2014, if not even even lower. How BP and Shell faring in the big picture? I mean, you know, Shell is just a, still a, only a few weeks into um, into this uh, big big takeover of BG Group, and that's uh, that's you know occupying the the, the minds of management um, over there. BP um, is in some ways under greater pressure just because of uh, it, its smaller size. I mean, they're both faring okay. You know, they're, they're, they're both you know they've they've significantly reduced costs um, and they're and they're doing okay. I mean, the, the 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 fundamental problem that they face across the whole industry is just this this huge glut of of oil, which is continuing to to weigh down on prices, and there doesn't really seem to be any end in sight to that in the in the medium term you know this is what's known within the industry as the driving season so in this is the time of year when americans you know the 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 world's biggest oil consumer they get in their in their big vehicles and they drive on vacation this year we're just seeing this glut is is not is not disappearing there's too much oil in storage there's too much oil uh, on the high seas and uh, that's keeping prices low before the break, we were talking about strategic takeovers and what government would or would not allow. Do you think a Exxon deal to buy BP, that long-mooted, I think people have been talking about that ever since I've been in financial journalism, which is a long time, sadly. I mean, would that be a strategic deal, do you think, that the government would block or do you think that would, would, would be allowed to sail on? It's it's very difficult to say. I mean, I think, uh, you know, if if... if if anything is a strategic deal, I mean, that, there would be quite a strong argument that that was a strategic, you know, that, that BP is a strategic company um, because of the, the the role that it has in in our energy industry, uh, in the North Sea, etc. Uh, probably much would depend on the on the condition in which BP, you know, was at when when the deal. Uh, when a deal like that was announced, I mean, if they if they were in such distress and 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 facing such problems that that the government felt that actually it was probably the best thing, then I could see uh, a deal like that going forward. I mean, and do we do, do we think BP is vulnerable because obviously BP is a lot smaller company than it was six or seven years ago. We seem to have we do now seem to know what the the cost of the Gulf of Mexico disaster was. That's be, that's we now have a figure out there at least that appears to be the sort of final figure. So it's it's now a much more biteable, you know, it's a much more manageable deal to do because it's a lot smaller company because they've had to sell so much off to, to pay for the disaster. We The cost of the disaster are now capped. I mean, as someone who doesn't really follow this sector as closely as you do, it would seem to me now would be that sort of moment where if you'd been looking at, at doing this, now would be a pretty good moment to, to make that jump, particularly given where the oil price is it now would be a pretty opportune moment, wouldn't it? Well, one of the things that we saw earlier this month was um, BP try to sort of draw a line under uh, Deepwater Horizon. Uh, they announced this figure uh, of $62 billion as a sort of final 
figure. That's how much they they believe the um, the spill in 2010 will cost them. I mean, that's not will be cash that continues to to roll out of BP for many years to come. I think it's an 18 year time frame that they're expecting to continue uh, paying out. But but uh, it, you know, this was for the first time an attempt to draw a line under this disaster that has really preoccupied Bob Dudley. So in a sense, yes, you're right. I mean, this this the, the, it's a bit easier to. Uh, to sort of understand BP and to understand so the implications. Your trying to stop for time here. Are they vulnerable or not? I don't see that deal happening imminently. I mean, I wouldn't rule it out altogether. I think the real, you know, what, what Exxon seem to be doing at the moment is is going for smaller acquisitions. There's also a sense that um, these mega deals, which we saw, you know, 20 years ago, don't seem to be flavour of the month in the oil industry at the moment. Um, Are there any other buyers out there? Who else? Has, who else has got the firepower to do that? To, to do BP? I think probably only Exxon. Actually, I mean, I think the other the other big US oil producers are so preoccupied on maintaining their dividends that they probably would struggle. Uh, Exxon certainly have the firepower to do it. Thanks, everyone. That's about all we've got time for. Robert Miller will be back in the chair next week. In the meantime, do keep up to date with the latest developments at thetimes.co.uk and we're all also on Twitter. Thanks to Richard, Robin and Nick for joining us, to our producer, David Maguire, and to you for listening.